0: Researchers have shown that up to 5% of the world's population has bipolar disorder. That's approximately 350 million people. With so many people dealing with bipolar disorder, it's hard to understand why it can take the average patient up to 10 years before a correct diagnosis is made. Today's guest is psychotherapist and author of Owning Bipolar, Michael Pibich. Michael Pippich is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and he's treated a wide range of mental disorders. He is also a national speaker on bipolar disorder. So, Michael Pippich, I am particularly pleased to have you join us today and talk to us about bipolar.
1: Well, thank you very much, Pamela. It's great to be with you today.
0: Now, Michael, the name of your book is Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. And, you know, when I first saw the title, I I sort of did a, a second take because I said, Owning Bipolar. Hmm, that's interesting. So just start at the beginning. Tell us why, what you mean when you say Owning Bipolar.
1: Well, yes, because uh, bipolar disorder we know is a chronic chronic, uh, psychiatric condition. It's uh, not something that just comes and goes in life. It certainly does in its presentation uh, with regard to extreme mood swings. But the disorder itself uh, stays with the person through that individual's lifetime. It is genetically based and it influences how the brain is developed to handle emotional regulation. So we can't beat back bipolar disorder. What we can do, though, uh, between uh, among patient, family, support systems, and among uh, uh, treatment professionals uh, involved in the care of bipolar disorder is to recognize its presence, work towards uh, acceptance by working through fears and denial about having the condition and the treatments uh, available for it. And and through coming to that acceptance acceptance is is really what I mean by owning bipolar disorder for the long haul. So instead of uh, fearing it and uh, avoiding it through denial and and, uh, stigma and this sort of thing, we come to uh, take responsibility for it and recognize that once uh, people uh, rally around that principle, uh, they can really uh, expect good treatment outcomes for the future and and recognize that bipolar, because it's not going to go away, doesn't have to necessarily define that individual either. It can be a part of that individual's life, but through good care and management over the long term, um, its its effects are just sort of minimal and peripheral to that person's life. And that's what they can look forward to uh, through owning bipolar.
0: You, you begin owning bipolar with a statement that uh, is, is often a parent's worst nightmare. Not the statement itself, but the, the, the other side of the statement. You start off by saying having bipolar is not your fault. And that is so often sort of the first place that a parent in particular will go. What did I do wrong? What didn't I do? What should I have done? Either blaming themselves or blaming their children or their, their, their child for what he or she didn't do. So it, it's, I think, a wonderfully reassuring, important, and factual way to begin owning bipolar.
1: Yeah, thank you, Pamela, for bringing that up. Uh, you know, when I do uh, in uh, community-based presentations for patients and family members or any interested individuals uh, wanting to know more about bipolar, I've always found that that is the most important thing for them to understand up front. And it takes so much pressure, I think, off those individuals who may be worried about that to one extent or another, just as you suggest. But uh, when people understand that it is a genetically-based uh, disorder, it's, it's not brought on because of bad parenting or because of trauma and that sort of thing. Now, some of those events in that individual's life may serve as catalysts to one extent or another to bring out uh, the symptoms and, and sort of make them manifest in that person's life in, a, in, a, in an identifiable way, but it's not ultimately caused by that. And like, like you just suggested, when people understand that, uh, then they can, you know, perhaps receive a little bit more of that information and, you know, through kind of releasing a little bit of that pressure off, off themselves. Um, interestingly, though, you know, I, one time when I was doing an educational uh, presentation for people... One person sort of in the back of the room, because it's always in the back of the room when, when this sort of thing happens, Right? Uh, raised her hand and said, well, can I curse my ancestors? Is that okay? <laughs> I said, well, that's up to you if you want to do that. But even for them, it, it wasn't their fault. You know, it, These things can be passed along genetically, and uh, the important thing is that we recognize it and, and do our best to take responsibility for it.
0: And, you know, the fact that you make the point that there are so many people, when you think about it, who actually have bipolar disorder, it it takes the edge off of I'm the only one, there's something intrinsically wrong with me and only me. This is something that is relatively common in the population.
1: Yes, and in fact, uh, in the book itself, um, sort of in the beginning uh, stages of, of of the presentation on the book, you know, I make a point of that. Um, by the way, a lot there's there's research uh, sort of all over the place in terms of bipolar incidence worldwide, uh, but uh, the suggestion that by some epidemiologists that it may be up to five percent, I think is is fairly solid in the context of everything else that I've researched uh, for this book and for the programs that that I that I have helping people with bipolar, uh, because it is so frequently uh, misidentified and misdiagnosed and mistreated. Um, But with that sort of 5% number, you know, what does that really mean to people on a regular basis? Well, what I uh, mentioned is that that's basically one in every 20 people that you come across over the course of any day, in any place, in any region, in any country of the world. One in 20 people. have. Uh, likely have some form of bipolar disorder. So you're right, uh, Pamela, to to bring out that people are not alone. They feel very alone, particularly when this diagnosis is suggested to them and presented to them, and and a assessment process is introduced. Uh, they really fear that, and um, and you know, and, and a lot of that is, I think, propagated by uh, stigma and the kinds of things on a on a cultural and societal level that uh, I think we as a community uh, can do better at addressing
0: Absolutely. Uh, but
1: for people to feel more connected with each other but as they do that and as they recognize that they're not alone, that also improves ultimately their ability to accept what, what they have to face and, and what it means for
0: them going forward. You've talked about just a moment ago, and certainly in in owning bipolar, the fact that it can take a long time uh, for someone to actually receive an accurate diagnosis. What makes the diagnosis so difficult?
1: Uh, you know, the research shows that about two-thirds of all people with bipolar disorder uh, uh, have been misdiagnosed at least at one point in their lives. And the majority of those individuals have been given a diagnosis of major depression alone, non-bipolar, or sometimes we call it unipolar uh, depression. Um, I, I think there's a, a number of things, uh, both historically uh, coming out of the advent of lithium and, and some of the other medications uh, appropriate for mood stabilization and what that really meant in terms of um, the the, uh, the approach therapeutically of bipolar disorder that it became kind of looked at as a meds-only kind of condition, where therapy was uh, uh, basically useless because all you had to do is give them lithium or whatever kind of medication, and th- they should be fine, and you could just move on. I think sort of as that became sort of a prevalent um, conventional concept, uh, what it's left us with is a couple of generations of therapists, I believe, that have been largely undertrained. Um, into what this diagnosis is all about. Now, uh, where we stand today, I think presently, uh, in recognizing bipolar is that many people with the condition usually present in, um, particularly in outpatient therapy, and outpatient clinics, with um, some other kind of manifestation of either of the disorder itself, some, some uh, prob- uh, consequence um, that, that relates to the disorder, Or, like I suggested, they may come in in an episode of depression or recent depression. Uh, Maybe they have marital issues. Certainly, substance abuse is highly co-occurring with bipolar disorder. So, very often, the the presenting problem in, in a clinical setting is something other than uh, mania or hypomania to the extent that we can just kind of look at it, recognize it, and sort of nail that diagnosis very, very quickly.
0: Michael, you what mentioned, think- uh, forgive me, um, but we're going to have to take a break. And, and I just want to sure. um, come back at the End of the break to the issue of substance abuse for persons who are dealing with bipolar disorder. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk having a conversation with Michael G. Pippich, who is the author of Owning Bipolar, how patients and families can take control of bipolar disorder. We'll be right back. Michael, the issue of substance use and abuse uh, when the individual has bipolar uh, disorder certainly complicates things, does it not?
1: Absolutely. Um, And I think it's particularly important for anyone who works in uh, addiction recovery uh, to be particularly aware of how co-occurring bipolar disorder is. In fact, uh, one particular study that I'm familiar with Shows that uh, over 60% of uh, people with bipolar one disorder, which many people consider the the more severe form, there's some controversy about that, but uh, over 60% of those individuals have some co-occurring substance use disorder, and um, over 40% with. Uh, with uh, Uh, bipolar two disorder has some sort of co-occurring substance use disorder. So it's highly prevalent. You could probably split the the difference and just say half of all of those people have uh, have had that disorder at one point or another in their lifetime. I think really when we look at that uh, broadly, uh, most of those individuals are seeking some sort of self-medication and not necessarily because they're aware that they have these bipolar mood swings. But they recognize uh, particularly at the at the level of how bad the uh, depressive cycle can be, uh, that they seek some sort of relief and and some something in their environment that that can uh, help them in some way or another. So I think that uh, you know, approaching it from a treatment standpoint, it's really important to look at it from that point of view. and I think and uh, uh, I have more confidence all the time that uh, people in uh, the substance uh, use um, uh, recovery field recognize that underlying mood disorders in general are very uh, uh, suspect uh, when they're trying to do a full assessment of the individuals that they're working with. My hope is to help people to understand from the clinical perspective how prevalent bipolar disorder is and how much that can really drive a substance use disorder and if not properly treated, can contribute uh, to um, substance relapse somewhere down the line. And then from sort of the patient family side of that equation, I think it's really important for people to be uh, better educated in what uh, these mood disorders like bipolar disorder can do to the individual and that, uh, you know, with that additional knowledge, realize that recovery from substances itself is uh, maybe the start of their healing and process uh, going forward, but it's not the end of it, not until the uh, underlying bipolar disorder, if it's prevalent in their life, uh, is fully addressed.
0: There's so much, I think, critically important information that you share in owning bipolar. One of the uh, additional points that you make uh, is that often the particular symptoms of bipolar disorder are seen in adolescence or early adulthood. So does that mean that if I'm 75 and I've not been diagnosed with bi- bipolar, I'm good? Am I good at 40? Am I good at 50?
1: Um, the I, I wish that could be the case, but unfortunately, <laughs> bipolar disorder gets worse through a person's lifetime. The the sort of idea that you mellow with age, I mean, I don't know if, that's, if that applies to all of us in general, but certainly when it comes to bipolar disorder, that's definitely not the case. It is a progressive neurological illness. And in fact, we have evidence to show that uh, these rather extreme mood swings can really take a physical toll on the brain. and And that early intervention... With medications and treatment, actually protect the brain. And you know, you mentioned earlier about parents and and their fears, and and, and I understand that certainly as a therapist and a parent myself, what that's like if if uh, if somebody would tell me that my child had a chronic illness of some sort, um, especially a mental illness, and there's a lot of fears around that and fears of treatment and so forth. But we we know that the proper medications for bipolar disorder to help stabilize. The brain's ability to uh, regulate emotions actually has neuroprotective effects. It will protect the brain over the long term, and 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 give that uh, person a better opportunity as they age through life to have a healthy brain functioning. And if they don't get that treatment, uh, uh, no, uh, unfortunately, they don't get better. They uh, they very often get worse. Um, and and one more thing too, it's not uncommon for people to be diagnosed uh, much later in life with bipolar disorder. But we know that the average age of onset is right around 18. It's that uh, late adolescence, early adult uh, developmental period where we typically see the signs and symptoms emerge. And it can emerge much earlier than that, uh, but that is the typical age of onset. And even if you do find somebody who uh, for example, like uh, the uh, journalist uh, Jane Pauley, uh, she wrote that uh, that she was diagnosed with her bipolar disorder when she was 50 years old. Um, so that, that's one um, example among celebrities that we know, and there's probably several others. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that the symptoms themselves emerged later. Very often, when you take a history of that individual going back through their lifespan, you probably will find pretty convincing evidence of mood swings uh, very early likely starting in adolescence
0: are there any other typical symptoms i hesitate to use the word typical um, but symptoms in addition to mood swings that might suggest it's at least time to have somebody take a look and let you know what could be going on with you
1: yeah, I, I, I think you know, the, the thing to really take a look at um, is, is any sort of presence of uh, uh, symptoms or signs that may at least approximate uh, manic symptoms, okay? For example, um, decreased need for sleep, which I think is a very big one in terms of diagnosing mania and hypomania uh, that's often neglected. And the reason why I think is because sometimes we confuse that with insomnia. And and I make the difference in the book, and in fact the DSM I think also is pretty good at showing a bit of the difference between what we usually think of as insomnia, which you know we wanna sleep, we try to sleep, and, and, and we can't. Or we go to sleep and we wake up in the middle of the night, we can't go back to sleep. That, that's sort of common very often when we're under stress or certainly in depressive and, and anxiety disorders of all kinds. It, unique to bipolar is this what we call decreased need for sleep, which is quite different. When somebody is in a manic phase, for example, um, they very often don't want to sleep. They want to stay up and do lots of things. They want to clean the house. They want to write the great American novel. Uh, they want to get all of this stuff done uh, because they feel so alive and energetic and uh, and hyperactive in that sense. And so, if if somebody's experiencing that, or we uh, around that individual, recognize that they have episodes where they're up uh, for two days, three days, and they only sleep a couple hours, but they they think they feel great and they're ready to go, that is uh, a pretty typical sign, and and it really is unique among all the mental diagnoses. I mean, I, I don't think anybody else, unless they had some other kind of medical condition that would keep them up at night, uh, and in a way that they want to be up and they want to be productive. Uh, before that, uh, that energy sort of dissipates and they don't have that opportunity anymore. That's one of the uh, signs, I think, really that, that uh, you know, uh, it doesn't get enough recognition that we should take a look at. And then, and then secondly, anything that uh, where you see impulsive behaviors um, that are otherwise uncharacteristic of that individual in, in other contexts of their life uh, because when we see mania and hypomania, we typically see somebody uh, because of that energy because they they feel great they feel sort of bulletproof they can then engage in all kinds of impulsive behaviors with with uh, potentially uh, dire consequences uh, for like for example shopping sprees, um, um, maybe they um, binge uh, drug or alcohol use during that time, or they engage in um, high-risk activities, uh, they like to get in their car and drive on the freeway 100 miles an hour or whatever the case may be, but we don't see that consistently in their life, just in episodes. And so if you find yourself kind of scratching your head why that person did that at that time, but the, you know, the last couple of months they haven't done anything like that, that, those are kind of signs to point us in the direction that there's a possible bipolar Uh, in uh, involvement
0: so if you're seeing extremes in behavior it's certainly a reason to meet with a professional clinical professional and get an evaluation
1: I think that's absolutely true it may not be bipolar disorder it could be something else going on but very often when you see those kind of extreme behaviors they typically reflect extreme changes in mood and the mood changes are driving those changes in behavior, and again, particularly when it's not entirely characteristic of that individual on a day-to-day basis.
0: For those who are listening, who are the parents or other loved ones of the person who, let's say, has, has already received the diagnosis, uh, so many times they sort begin to scratch their head because they don't really know what to do to be helpful. Um, They don't want to be overindulgent. They don't want to be not understanding. They want to be compassionate, but that's really hard sometimes. What's a first step for loved ones of someone who's been diagnosed with bipolar?
1: And, you know, that's one of the big reasons why I wrote Owning Bipolar is not just to help patients themselves, the people with the condition uh, themselves, but uh, the loved ones around that individual, because so often what I've heard from family members, spouses, parents, caregivers of all of all kinds, uh, is that they feel left behind in the process, that they don't feel like they know enough. And in fact, one of the more inspiring moments for me to, to develop these programs and the book itself was when um, I was with a young person who had bipolar disorder coming in for uh, his first session, and his mother was there. And the mother kept telling me, you know, there's just not enough information available. Now, there are informational sources but uh, available, but I, I believe that when she pounded that concept into me, it really made a lot of sense that she was representing what many, many family members feel in that position, that they feel out of the loop, out of touch. They don't know really what bipolar is. Perhaps they've heard of it and they sort of understand in a limited way, but they don't understand what their role is at this point going forward with their loved one. And they want to stay uh, apprised. So education is really the key, the proper education. And in in, in the book itself, I, I explain how people can get involved in the treatment without uh, you know, undue encroachment on that individual's need to maybe maintain some confidentiality in the therapy process and so forth. So it's kind of a delicate thing to follow. But there are approaches for family members, for loved ones, to understand what the condition is, understand what the treatments are all about, and how to engage and interact with their bipolar loved one uh, going forward in a way that is supportive uh, but uh, doesn't uh, dismiss opportunities to talk uh, honestly and openly about about those um, um, issues going forward and what it means to, to um, love somebody with bipolar disorder for the long term.
0: We're going to take a break, but when we come back, um, I, I'd like to ask you about the impact of HIPAA laws on family members' ability to get information. Folks, Stay right where you are. I'm having a conversation with Michael G. Pipich, who is the author of Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. We'll be right back. (music) ¶¶ laws, as I know you know, Michael, were originally designed and conceived of, if you will, to protect patients' confidentiality. I raised the issue uh, some time ago. I talked with um, an author who was just exhausted with rage that as her son was going through a bipolar episode, needing to be hospitalized, all kinds of things because he was an adult, he was over uh, 18, the doctors and the hospital refused to give her information that she actually, in my mind, needed because they did not want to violate her son's HIPAA rights. What do you say to that?
1: Well, I can be very sympathetic uh, for that dilemma. I think um, it's important to to uh, create a collaborative approach uh, for uh, the individual, uh, for the for the benefit of their care, and for the clinicians who, like you say, uh, very often require that additional information. You know, just um, bipolar two itself is diagnosed in part um, by other people recognizing those changes in the individual. That's part of the diagnostic requirement and so if you don't have the opportunity to have to, to obtain some kind of objective information, it may be very difficult for that and for so many other reasons going forward. I do even have a chapter in owning bipolar about what to do with regard to inpatient care and that's one of the m- most important issues. How do you create a collaborative situation um, and certainly I would encourage patients to with it, if they feel it's appropriate of course because you know there are different circumstances. But to consider having a loved one, at least one, maybe two, um, somewhat involved in their treatment and how to do that. But, of course, if somebody goes into the hospital, we can't expect them all all the time to be completely thoughtful and rational under those circumstances. That can be a very stressful kind of situation. What I encourage family members to do, though, is to share the information with the staff. Uh, It can be a one-way sort of experience where – you know a a loved one who is a part of that admission process can say uh, you know my um, my my loved one has a bipolar condition or it's suspected or you know I obtained this information and I'm wondering if mood swings are at play here and can provide the staff with information. The staff very often doesn't have to without that patient's consent uh, reciprocate the information, but at least you have that opportunity to present those facts to the of, uh, to the uh, a treatment team and to the facility itself that's caring for that individual, I think that's a really responsible thing. Yes, HIPAA can, uh, can, I think it's important uh, for what it is, but it does present some real hurdles to try to make sure that that information is, uh, is provided, but there are ways to do it. And there are thoughtful and intelligent ways that won't violate those regulations and not put anybody at risk in the process. And also, I think it's important for treatment teams and uh, and these facilities themselves to recognize that those loved ones are critical for the aftercare program as well. So that engagement has to go uh, two ways as as much as we can create that. So that that individual, when he or she is released from the hospital, has the best chance for success going forward and and minimize uh, you know symptom relapse. Owning, by, uh, Owning Bipolar, the book itself, has its own website. It's owningbipolar.com. Uh, if you want to know more about me and uh, my clinical trainings and my practice and so forth, that's michaelpipich.com, which is Michael dot And then for people who are interested in getting more information about bipolar and connecting with other people, um, I do have BipolarNetwork.com and the Bipolar Network Facebook page.
0: Absolutely. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available to you on demand by going to MYNDTALK.org. You can also download the Mind Talk app from your. Uh, iTunes or Google Play Store. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26x2 Communications. And be sure to go to the MindTalk.org homepage and sign up for our weekly free giveaway. You may just find something that you'd love to read in the mail. And folks, remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. Take care